to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. There are several stories I want to talk with you about today. They're all important and relevant in different ways. During the next hour, I'll be talking about the growing global fears about the coronavirus and what it means to us in America, the latest raucous presidential debates, and the growing crisis among the Democrats, and they're creating it among themselves. And did you remember that February 22nd was George Washington's birthday? I'll talk about that a little bit too. And finally, some thoughts on the sudden and shocking death of a valued colleague. They called it suicide, but I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. Let's start with the current concerns about the newest coronavirus. We're supposed to call it COVID-19. That's his, its official title. And it's also called the Wuhan virus. But most people, it seems, haven't latched on to them yet, and they're still just calling it coronavirus. Of course, that's a generic term, but never mind. It's one of the best examples of how a story that seems to be an isolated situation suddenly became a threat to the entire world. The numbers of people infected around the world is starting to explode. At least 32 countries have now reported confirmed cases of the virus, and the count is becoming something close to unbelievable. In China alone, the numbers are staggering although the Chinese government stands accused of seriously underreporting the numbers. The ones they are reporting, though, are horrendous all by themselves. They say that a total of more than 72,400 people have been sickened by the virus, and 1,868 people have died from it. And they also say that 80% of the cases are mild, although the reports coming back from China tell a very different story. They say that the Chinese have stopped burying their dead and are burning them instead. They say that the crematoria are working nonstop 24-7 and cannot handle the load, so now mobile incinerators are picking up the slack and the dead. They say that the bodies are lying along the sidewalks and are piled onto trucks to be taken for burning and that their ashes are collected in large trash bins for disposal. No funerals here. The true impact of the coronavirus is a closely guarded state secret because China is suffering from a deadly epidemic of biblical proportions. One of the latest estimates that has been confirmed, according to my sources, is that an astronomical 4.1 million people have died in the Hubei province where the virus started. 4.1 million people. Imagine. China has been carefully hiding the cause of the virus outbreaks, but also because its methods of counting the sick and the dead began with a sloppy system, and as the epidemic continued to grow so rapidly, the system was completely overwhelmed. So it's very likely that the numbers that we are getting from China are really just made up numbers. And then there's the economy. The economy in China 
is also faltering because of health curfews and factory closures and people actually being quarantined, whole cities being quarantined. In fact, it's been said that some 60 million people are living under quarantine right now. But the government's trying to put things together again and, and get things moving. She said that he wanted the factories to begin opening. We'll see. Because when workers go back to their jobs and infect each other, the factory itself becomes the vector for the disease. You're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Another sign that things are not as they should be, Chinese coal consumption is down by more than a third, which means the factories are not up and running. Face it, my friends, the news is confusing. Apple announced that its March quarter guidance will not meet expectations. They're not going to meet their own financial projections, and that makes their stock go down lower. But then they also announced that they will be reopening more than half of their stores in China, 29 out of 42. Go figure that one out. Official Washington is still denying the seriousness of the virus, so we're getting conflicting reports from Washington as well. On Friday evening in a Fox News interview, President Donald Trump's chief economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, said that he didn't think the impact would be very serious. And he said, there's no question that the virus will have some impact on global growth and some impact on the U.S. But he also said that in the United States, the virus was 100% contained. But then on Tuesday, the CDC warned that it's not a matter of if the virus will come here, it's a matter of when. So who's right? Because the CDC says we should prepare. And then there's the matter of our new trade agreement with China, which was signed on January 15th. If China's factories are closed, they are not going to be able to produce the parts that go into American products. And so they will not be getting the revenues from their sales. And then in turn, they will be unable to pay for American goods, particularly agricultural products, which they desperately need, and they're committed to buy. This may lead to new fears of famine in China. And on the local level, shops are closed, people are locked in their homes, hospitals are full to overflowing and their dead are being cremated in huge numbers with scores of crematoria working 24-7 as they burn more than 100 bodies a day each. And the latest reports about them is that they're starting to break down because of overwork. What is happening in China is nothing short of an utter catastrophe, a catastrophe of biblical proportions. The Chinese admit to nearly 2,600 deaths, with more than 77,000 confirmed cases as of February 24th. And that's not taking into account the other number of 4.1 million dead, which I'm told is confirmed. What about that? And yet, even with the numbers so high and the virus continuing to spread, Still, the Chinese will not let the CDC into the country to try to find the key to arresting the spread of this virus. So what are they afraid of? Well, maybe they're afraid that we'll find out 
that this was not a virus that came from a fresh meat market, but rather it was a bioweapon that was developed in their very secret level four biohazard facility. And maybe they don't want us to find out that instead of 2,600 deaths in the whole country, there were over 4 million deaths just in the Wuhan area. And then there's the Chinese economy, which seems to be shutting down completely. Factories producing good for thousands of global companies remained closed long past the Lunar New Year holidays because employees couldn't return to work. Rail, air, ocean shipments stopped moving through the affected areas. Soon, firms in other countries began to suspend production because they couldn't procure the parts from their suppliers in China. And some even announced plans to move their production facilities out of China. This new coronavirus may mark the beginning of the collapse of China as the second largest economy in the world. Now, that may seem strange, but when you consider how virulent this virus is and how many people it seems to be killing, they are going to be facing a very serious depopulation and an inability to restart their economy. The new coronavirus is likely to be responsible for a major shift as India becomes the new China, but a democratic one with an understanding of how the free enterprise system works, a free enterprise system that China never had. But getting back to the virus and how it may affect the rest of the world, as of Tuesday, U.S. officials have now confirmed that 53 cases are now confirmed in the United States. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 36 states, at least, now have patients under investigations, and those numbers have remained fairly stable. They're still in the double digits, at least that. The next few weeks may help us better understand how vulnerable we are to this virus as we see if there is a sudden growth in the number of people infected. The president has taken some strong steps to limit our vulnerability. He's limited entrance into the country by people from other countries with growing numbers of infected people. And the CDC has warned hospitals to prepare for an influx of patients who may be infected with the disease. And on Tuesday, they announced that the likelihood of the virus becoming a pandemic was very, very strong. Only a few days ago, they said it was not a pandemic because not enough people had died. Although the number of infected people around the world spiked, particularly in Italy and Iran. In the Iranian city of Qom, 50 people died since February 19th, and possibly thousands of people have become sick, although the official tally was 12 dead and 47 cases of infections just a few hours earlier. In Italy, which is the site of Europe's first major outbreak, some 50,000 people are in lockdown in 12 cities and towns, and the number of people who are infected has grown to over 200. And in South Korea, there have been more than 800 cases reported. South Korea's healthcare system is not like China's. It is, by most standards, very modern, excellent, and yet they have tested some 20,000 people for the virus and found more than 800 positive cases. 
That's not a good sign since it shows that the virus is far more resilient than even the best efforts of advanced medicine to contain it. So, in response, South Korea's President Moon Jae-in has raised the national alert level to red alert, which is the country's highest level, although it's not clear how this is going to help. On February 23rd, President Xi said China is in a crisis that was grim and would certainly have a negative impact on the country's economy. But he promised that however this unfolded, the crisis would be brief and manageable. He called a meeting of over a thousand senior officers in China. Some, of course, participated by telephone. But they decided that it was time for everybody to go back to work. Here's what's bothering me, my friends. First of all, China has no idea what they're doing. They're just lying to the world about what's happening. And they are not willing to share what is going on with China with other countries that have better health care systems than they do. We still, after several months of trying to deal with it, don't know a whole lot about this virus. Why it's striking some places harder than others? Why some people get sick and some don't? And so many more questions that no one seems to be trying to answer. It's almost as if the authorities are trying to hide what they don't know and are giving us reassurance about something they really don't know anything about. When White House advisors like Larry Kudlow and the president himself tell us that in the U.S. the virus is 100% contained, I have to wonder. Because we don't know who has it but doesn't know it and is walking around with it like typhoid Mary. It's crazy. And my point is to raise the question whether there are asymptomatic carriers of the Wuhan coronavirus, people who are perfectly healthy but who can carry the virus and infect others. Is this what happened in China? The truth, of course, is that we just don't know. Whether or not this virus is, as I've reported, an engineered bioweapon that escaped from the Wuhan Bio Safety Lab, we still have a lot to learn about it. Because what we do know about it is that it is able to mutate rapidly, it is easily spread from person to person, and that it can be fatal. And we're just learning now that non-symptomatic people can pass it on to other people who will also be asymptomatic. We have also observed that it seems to affect the elderly and those with underlying health issues the most. That it seems to affect men more than women. And that it seems to affect adults more than children. We also think we know that on the Diamond Princess, the ship that was stranded off the coast of Japan, of the 3,700 passengers on board that cruise ship, 690 contracted the virus, and three of them died. But that also means that 3,010 people did not contract the virus. Is there a natural immunity for some? Or were more than 3,000 people able to somehow avoid being exposed to the other 690? Was the ship the vector for spreading the virus? And then there's another issue. 
After the quarantine ended and passengers left the ship, some of them who had tested negative while they were on the ship tested positive after they left the ship and joined the general population. And we know that at least 18 Americans, as well as several Australians who were passengers on the Diamond Princess, only tested positive after they returned home. In short, my friends, it's a mess. And it shows how little we know about this virus and how much we really have to learn and fast. Now, if you're listening to this from anywhere in the United States, you are the lucky ones. The medical system here is the best in the world. And the CDC is actively trying to catch up to the virus and protect the American people from it as soon as possible. Now, I'm going to take a short break so you can hear from the wonderful people at America Out Loud. But don't go away. I'll be right back to continue this story. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Now, just before the break, we were talking about the coronavirus and how it's going to affect us here in America. As I said, America has the best medical system in the world, and the CDC is acting aggressively to try to develop the rapid tests that will diagnose the infection quickly and accurately, treatments to kill the virus and save the patient, and vaccines to protect the healthy from the virus in the future. All of these are necessary, and laboratories around the world have made these solutions a priority. But it is here in America that we have the medical systems to support and treat those who are already infected and to do whatever is necessary to bring them back to good health. There are facilities that are already prepared to receive infected patients with quarantine. There are protocols for at-home quarantine, and the CDC has urged hospitals around the country to prepare for an influx of patients 
with appropriate care for quarantine. In this respect, my friends, we are light years ahead of most of the world. And in addition, on Monday, the White House announced a $2.5 billion emergency coronavirus fund to support the development of these vaccines, treatments, protective equipment, and preparedness and response activities. And of course, once the president made this announcement, the Democrats slammed the proposal. In this case, they said it wasn't enough, and it wasn't detailed enough, and it didn't address the right problem. So we'll see where that goes. Will they hold up the funding because they can't agree on a number? It wouldn't be the first time. How about approving the $2.5 billion to get that going and then talk about what else needs to be done? Well, as I said before, we are lucky to be living in America. If there is any chance to limit this epidemic, this will be the place to do it. So pray that the preparations that are being made here now will be enough to keep us and our families and our neighbors and our fellow Americans safe and secure if the virus does come in force. Now, let's move on to something else. And this is um, a totally different subject, sometimes entertaining and sometimes just annoying. The highlight of the first Las Vegas debate was that Mike Bloomberg showed up for his first appearance on the debate stage. I talked about this last week. I was disappointed that Tulsi Gabbard did not appear on the stage. It seemed as though the rules prevented her from appearing, and the same thing happened to Tom Steyer. But if the rules could be changed to enable Bloomberg to appear on the stage, then it seems to me they should have been changed for Gabbard and Steyer as well. But nobody on the DNC asked me, can't imagine why, so I just had to grin and bear it. Well, I wasn't grinning, but moving right along. Anyway, Bloomberg was there and he was a bust. He was a stick. He showed no emotion. Not even any imagination. In fact, there was a moment when I wondered if he was there at all, or was it just a cutout with a recording of his voice? Elizabeth Warren, on the other hand, was a firecracker. She was loaded with energy, and she came out fighting, aiming straight at Bloomberg with a one-two punch about his nasty references to women and his confidentiality agreements with the women he had offended over the years. I have to laugh. The Democrats accused Trump of vulgarity, but Trump is a schoolboy compared to Bloomberg. He is the most vulgar politician I have ever had the displeasure to see. His remarks about women are so disgusting that I would never repeat them, no less put them in my show. On the stage, however, he wasn't vulgar and he wasn't disgusting. He was just a condescending jerk. His demeanor was one of someone who couldn't really be bothered to participate, but who just looked down from his perch on Olympus at the plebeians on the stage next to him with disdain and, yes, disgust. He was awful. I guess when you're that rich and that vapid, you may think that you can buy anything with money. 
but he is underestimating the American people. They gave him a chance, him and his $54 billion, and he blew it. But Bernie Sanders was his usual self, and he blew them all away. He won the Nevada caucuses by a huge margin with 46.8% of the total vote. Biden came in a far second with only 20.2%. Buttigieg came in even a farther third, 14.3%, and Warren with a distant 9.7%. It was a rout. And the Democrats are now in a panic. How can they support Sanders the Socialist who praises Cuba and Fidel Castro and the old Soviet Union? How can they support his radical ideas? <laughs> it's going to be something to watch. So then we come up to the second debate. That was on Tuesday, February 25th. It was chaos. The moderators had almost no control of the candidates who shouted over each other, talked consistently over their time limits, and were virtually just wild. No one called out Joe Biden when he was talking about gun control laws and came up with another one of his famous gaffes. He said that uh, 150 million people were killed since 2007. I guess he was talking about killed by guns. Quote, when Bernie voted to exempt the gun manufacturers from liability. 150 million people, he said. That's more than all the wars, he said. No, Joe. That's nearly half our population, and it never happened. As usual, Joe, you got it wrong. Mike Bloomberg came to the debate considerably more prepared than he was for the last one. He even joked about how he did such a great job at the last debate, he thought the other candidates would be afraid to show up at this one. I didn't know he could joke. He also spoke a lot about money, mostly his money, and how much he has spent on this and that, including $100 million that he talked about that he spent to support candidates throughout the country in congressional races. Okay, I'll buy it, but it's not very impressive. A hundred million dollars for him, that's pocket change. And then Steyer brought up the subject of reparations for the descendants of slaves and said that he was the only one on the stage who supports it. That came out of nowhere. It was a funny thing to say because it was totally out of context. It didn't relate to any question that the moderators asked. But I guess he was speaking to the black audience that he supposed was out there in television land. Joe Biden promised to support a program of health care investments. For example, he suggested a program that the CDC would set up that's similar to DARPA to support R&D projects, but in this case to address health care issues like diabetes, Alzheimer's, obesity, and cancer. I'm not, as you know, a big fan of Joe Biden for a whole list of reasons, but this, I think, is a really good idea. 
Some of you know that I have spent many years in Israel, and when I was there, I worked with R&D projects in universities as well as in startup companies in leading-edge R&D. Tiny Israel has become one of the most dynamic and productive sources of new ideas that are turned into technology that now drive our lives. And you know, we can learn from Israel, where the government invests in startup R&D, not unlike what Biden suggested, and not unlike what DARPA does with defense technology. And the inventions that have come out of this program have literally changed the world. They include cell phone applications like instant messaging and medical technology like endoscopes and colonoscopes with cameras and surgical capabilities and the Intel microprocessor that drives our computers and Waze, you know, that program that we have on our phones and on our cars maybe that tells us uh, not only how to get to places but how the traffic is and where the traffic traps are and so forth and thousands of other things that have changed the way we do things. By giving entrepreneurs a leg up with a partial investment, the government of Israel has helped the way we live our lives every day in virtually every country of the world. So I think Joe's idea is a good one. I'd vote for that. Not for Joe, but for that. And speaking of Israel, a new question came up in this debate, one I've never heard before. But there's a reason for it pointing out that there are, for the first time in American history, two Jewish candidates running for president, and both of them were on the debate stage. So the question to both Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg was this. How would they deal with the controversy in the Middle East between Israel and the Palestinians, and would they move the U.S. Embassy back from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv? Sanders said, he would take the moving the embassy into consideration, but he wouldn't give a definitive answer. He called Israel's Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu a, quote, reactionary racist, unquote. Funny that he used his familiar name, his nickname, Bibi, although he called him a reactionary. He showed familiarity, but then he called him a reactionary racist. Okay. He also called for absolutely protecting the independence of Israel, but, he said, you can't ignore the suffering of the Palestinians. Bloomberg took a different tack. He said, you can't move the embassy back. We should not have done that without getting something from the Israeli government, but it was done, and you're going to have to leave it there. Then he made an important point. He, he said... Well, first of all, he said that the only solution is a two-state solution. But he went on to say, the real problem here is that you have two groups of people, both of whom think that God gave them the same piece of land, unquote. And that's true. And that's the problem. And I don't know, I, Ilana Friedman, don't know that there is a solution to this problem. Nobody is going to walk away from this table completely satisfied. Then Warren, who was not Jewish, supported the two-state solution, but said that it was up to the two parties to get to the negotiating tables by themselves. Good idea, of course, and it makes sense, unless you are familiar with the Middle East. 
because it won't ever happen for many reasons that we've talked about on this program before and probably will again. It's complicated, and a 1 minute and 15 second soundbite is not going to provide a solution. All the contestants were energized at the second debate, even Bloomberg, although I don't think he ever smiles. I think if he smiled, his face would break. At one point, Bernie got so excited that his face turned very red and it looked like he might have an attack before the night was over. It's very clear that the Democrats are deeply divided and they're miles apart on the issues. And they sure showed it on the debate stage. Amy Klobuchar was the only one who really spoke passionately about the need for Democrats to come together. It seemed to fall on deaf ears. So what is important now? Well, of course, the next elections, which are the big ones on Super Tuesday. That'll be March 3rd. Those primaries will be held in 15 jurisdictions. Normally, I don't read lists, but this one actually might be interesting. They are Alabama, American Samoa, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, and Virginia. Red states, blue states, purple states. The outcome should be very interesting indeed. I know somebody who's going to be staying up late that night. Anyway, that represents about 40% of the American voting population, and they will have the opportunity to cast their votes in the Democratic primaries on Super Tuesday. And that will tell us a lot about who may be the candidate that the Democrats will be supporting next November. Now, they talked a lot about President Trump and how awful a president he is. It's very interesting, you know, how the Democrats continue to see President Trump as someone who is destroying the country instead of someone who has been building the country. I mean, I, we've talked before about what an astonishing job the president has done until now. But of course, the timing right now is terrible because the Wuhan coronavirus is causing huge losses in the financial markets. On Monday and Tuesday alone, the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped nearly 1,900 points. And the price of gold and silver, which are considered hedges against inflation, they went up. The huge drops one day after another, following the announcements by the CDC about the state of the coronavirus, are scaring a lot of Americans. Because honestly, it's very confusing and very frightening. And we're not getting a straight story from the people who should be telling it like it is and either reassuring us or helping us to prepare for something that we don't know too much about. And as far as the stock market is concerned, you know, there are a lot of Americans who invest in the market. They invest through their 401ks at work or they invest at home on their computers. And what does this mean when the markets fall so dramatically? Will Trump be held responsible for the fall of the stock market? 
Will they try to hold him responsible for the Wuhan coronavirus? It's absurd, but in this crazy world we're living in right now, it certainly could happen. So where do we go from here? And what do we need to know? Well, if we're talking about the elections, we need to know whom to vote for if you're a Democrat. Or if you're a Republican, you already know whom to vote for. But there's more. What about the virus? What do we need to know about that? We need to watch the news. We need to listen to what's going on and try to figure out where we need to go and what we need to do. I will have a section on this next week, and we'll talk more about it. There are things you do need to know. And in the meantime, I'm going to take a short break, and I'll be right back with You Just Can't Make This Stuff Up. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Okay, here's a story for you. Have you heard that Susan Collins, senator from Maine who calls herself a Republican, she has an opponent. And what an opponent. Wow. Bree Kidman, a Democrat, who describes herself this way, quote, criminal defense attorney by day and radical fat queer slash performance artist slash model slash musician slash activist, most other times, unquote. On the website of For the Main Educationalists on Sexual Harmony, in brackets, mesh, she has also fostered this description, quote, as a queer feminist lawyer, mermaid, writer, activist, and artist, unquote. Yes, that's right, I did say mermaid. No, I did not make that up. Anyway, this is the woman who is running against Susan Collins. Now, Susan Collins, the the Republican Party has a problem with her. She's very independent, and she frequently will lean toward a Democrat point of view. 
And that's maddening sometimes when the votes are very close. But she is nothing if not serious. And this person is going to run against her. Now, Kidman, I say this person because Kidman was born female, but doesn't like to use feminine pronouns. Instead, prefers, quote, they or their, unquote, which for purists like me just isn't English. So, sorry, can't do it. Suck it up. Anyway, Kidman has taken the whole concept of left-wing lunacy to its illogical extreme. She is running her campaign on the theme of revolution, and her campaign logo is, wait for it, a guillotine. The guillotine was a nightmarish contraption that was best known for its use during the French Revolution. Although it was used for quite a long time after the French Revolution, and it is said that Hitler even used it as well. Now, this contraption employed a heavy, sharp blade dropped from a height that used the force of gravity to separate the heads from the bodies of people who were considered enemies of the state, as well as thieves, murderers, and other unsavory souls. This is Kidman's logo. Now, according to Kidman, and this is the whole reason or the rationale behind her choosing this particular symbol, quote, the guillotine is an image which calls to mind what people have done for revolution before. If we can find a better path to revolution than that, we owe it to ourselves and our country, unquote. Did you understand that? I'm not sure I did. Well, never mind. In an interview with the Portland Press Herald, she said, quote, we're not going to start a guillotine in Monument Square in Portland and start beheading people. It's a symbol of the work we have to do to overcome flaws in our system, unquote. I guess her choice of logos is meant to symbolize a revolt by lower and middle class people. But in a country that is standing so dangerously close to the edge of hate and violence between the growing political divisions, this symbol of bloody murder seems hardly appropriate. And by the way, anyone who has read the history of the guillotine and the French Revolution will remember that some of the strongest proponents of the guillotine, including one of the men who invented it and another who promoted it, both became victims to it. I guess you could say they died by the sword. So you might want to rethink your logo, Brie. And before I forget, but still in the realm of political make-believe, here's another even quicker story. Joe Biden, who is known for his outrageous gaffes, did it again by announcing this week that he was Joe Biden and he was running for the United States Senate, unquote. You just can't make this stuff up. Well, then there's a story of China's latest plague, and I'm not talking about the coronavirus. I'm talking about the real thing, the plague, as in bubonic plague, the Black Death. As if China didn't have enough problems with its bioweapon virus that escaped from its lab and infected tens of thousands of its own people, maybe millions, three people came down with another plague, bubonic plague, in the same month, November. 
just as the coronavirus was beginning to spread. The most recent of the three cases was a 55-year-old man who caught the plague from eating a wild rabbit in the Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region. I guess the rabbit had fleas, and they carried the disease. As it happens, the original plague, which killed 20 million people in Europe during the Middle Ages, is now treatable with a range of antibiotics as long as it's caught early. If it's left untreated, though, the mortality rate can be 50 to 60 percent. So if you had it in mind to catch and eat a wild rabbit, you might want to think twice. But imagine China having to deal with two plagues. You just can't make this stuff up. Did you remember that February 22nd was the birthday of George Washington, the father of our country, the guy who chopped down his father's cherry tree? Now, there is a movement in this country to erase Washington's memory from our history books, along with Jefferson and a whole long list of other people. And that was because they were slave owners. Now, as far as I'm concerned, even the idea of one person owning another is appalling. It's brutal and cruel and inhumane. But it is impossible to understand history without also recognizing that the sensibilities of the time in history are what defines them. When our country was young, slavery was an accepted practice in the Southern culture. It was wrong, it was evil, but even good men owned slaves. And the good that these men did in their lifetimes helped to create an America that refused to tolerate slavery. America's liberation of the slaves set an example and blazed a trail for much of the Western world. There is still slavery in the world, and it is still cruel and barbaric. In the Quranic teachings, for example, slavery, even sexual slavery, is acceptable under certain conditions of conquest. We saw that in the brief but brutal ISIS conquest of northern Iraq and Syria. So if we can accept, for the sake of this discussion at least, the fact that slavery is always evil, but that people who owned slaves in the early days of America were shaped by the world they lived in, and that beyond that terrible custom that was acceptable within the structure of the culture of the day, they accomplished the creation of a brand new nation that was a model for the rest of the world, and ultimately resulted in the freedom for all the slaves throughout the country. When I was a young girl, we used to celebrate the birthdays of two of our greatest presidents, Abraham Lincoln on February 12th and George Washington on February 22nd. These were school holidays, national holidays, and we learned about them and learned from the stories that we heard in school and at home Lessons for our own lives. Our children don't get that anymore. All the presidents, unnamed, unrecognized, are lumped together in a nondescript holiday called President's Day. It means nothing except school's out and there's no mail delivery. Phooey. So I'm happy to celebrate Lincoln's birthday on February 12th and Washington's birthday on February 22nd. 
You can take your President's Day and enjoy the day off, but I'll enjoy the stories about Lincoln and Washington and remember how they made our lives in the 21st century so much better. Now, this is a different kind of story, a sad one, but one I think that needs to be told. I'm not the only one telling it, but today I would like to share it with you. Last week, I lost a valued colleague. I wrote about it in a short article on the America Out Loud website, so I don't want to repeat myself, but I do want to tell you about what happened because his death touched me deeply. They say he killed himself. I don't believe it. His body was found lying by the side of the road next to his car with a gun near his body. He was shot once in the chest. They called it suicide. I call it murder. A lot of people didn't like Phil Haney. He suffered fools badly. He hated hypocrisy and he hated deceit. But he was one of a kind and the people who knew him and loved him knew he was a patriot, a man of deep religion, and a very special person. He uncovered a lot of truths that some people didn't want uncovered, but he didn't beat around the bush. He told it straight, just the way he saw it. When the Department of Homeland Security was created in 2001, it was in response to the attacks on 9-11, and he was one of the founders he saw the threat that came at us from the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda. But the Muslim Brotherhood particularly disturbed him because he saw that it had an intricate network of Islamic organizations that stated openly that their goal was to make America a Muslim nation. And he wasn't one to let that go. His research produced hundreds of pages of detailed intelligence that he said could have intercepted the terrorist attacks in San Bernardino, California and Orlando, Florida, but the Obama administration ordered him to alter or destroy them. Phil's first battle was with the jihadis who supported terrorism overseas, raised money to support them from a complex and secret network of organizations in the United States, and who secretly infiltrated our government at every level and worked their way into the highest offices in the U.S. government, including the White House. Phil's second mission was against the deep state itself, and it turned out to be a very dangerous one. Phil hated the depravity of federal officials who would accommodate the purveyors and supporters of terrorism within our country, and he was an outspoken critic of the Obama administration that supported and protected them, and the deep state that Obama created to secure his own political power when he was president and afterwards. When I first met Phil, I was writing my book on the terrorist links between Hamas care and the Muslim Brotherhood in America. He was the expert I turned to who could provide the knowledge and the experience to review my manuscript and make corrections, if necessary, to my facts. 
Phil referred me to some people who could tell me firsthand about operations that are detailed in the book, who were involved in rooting out some of the players, and the intricacies of the complex and secret Islamic network raising money for terrorist plots against the United States and infiltrating into the highest levels of government. We had discussions about a few issues, but overall, I think he seemed to think I'd gotten it right. And in the end, he not only approved it, he wrote a review, a part of which ended up on the back cover of the book. At first, Phil and I just talked on the telephone because we were in different parts of the country. But when I finally got to meet him, it was well worth it. Phil had also written a book called See Something, Say Nothing. And when his book was finished, he went on a book tour to promote his book. And he came to a city near me. We went out to dinner and spent several hours talking and talking before he gave his speech. The next day, he was off to another city, and our paths only crossed again occasionally. He was working on a new book, and I was eager to see it published. It would name names and reveal some of the plots that were targeting our president and our nation by people who thought they were above the law. More recently, he warned several of his friends that he thought he might be a target of assassination, and he told them that if he were to be found dead in what would be called a suicide, they were not to believe it. He was a deeply religious Christian, and he sincerely believed that taking one's own life was a sin. And he assured his friends that they should know this, that under no circumstances would he ever commit suicide. And I believe that. Last week, Phil was at the peak of his career and of his life. He was about to finish his revealing book, and it was going to be published later this year. He was also being considered for a new job with a federal agency, doing what he loved doing and was so good at. And he was about to be married. Why would someone with so much joy and positive energy going for him, why would he shoot himself in the chest? The answer is that he wouldn't, and no one who knew him well would ever consider that this was a possibility, because it wasn't. Is it possible that his death was staged? Given the mission he was on that was targeting some of the most powerful people in government? The simple answer to that question is yes. So today his colleagues and his friends mourn his death and, to put it quite frankly, no one who knew him believes that he committed suicide. Phil Haney, my friend and colleague, was murdered. And I believe that we, his friends and his colleagues, We'll all do our best to see that one day the truth will come out. But for now, Phil, your devotion to the important work you were doing, your integrity, and your dedication to this country, all that and more will be sorely missed by those of us who truly appreciated you and respected you. And we will carry your torch forward in any way we can. Our deepest sympathy reaches out to those who loved you, who will grieve for you. And we, your colleagues and friends, will miss you, Phil, 
And we will also grieve because we know that we have lost a fearless warrior for the country that you loved. You were a true patriot and an example to the rest of us. Rest in peace, Phil. May your memory be a blessing. Well, that's it for today, my friends. The clock has run out. Thank you for spending this hour with me. I hope you will join me again next week. God bless. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report. <laughs>